Right, hello and welcome to another episode of the Cats Protection Shelter Medicine Podcast. My name is Sandra Milburn and I'm one of the vets here at Cats Protection. And with me today, I've got Daniel Cummings, who's our behavior manager. Hello, Daniel. Hello. <laughs> Thanks so much for letting me drag you back on. I know I did threaten it last time and you didn't seem to be too unwilling, which is good. No, I'm... you know, you didn't have to, to force me too much. I, <laughs> I will expect the check in the post, though. Of um, course. It's a, it's a pleasure to be back uh, <laughs> on the podcast. And just as a sort of um, little provisor to start off with, we are in a random office um, amongst some shelves of various papers, um, paper things. Um, there might be random door slamming in the background. There might be the odd donkey neighing as well and all sorts of other noises going on. So um, please do bear with us. Many other podcasts start with door slamming and donkeys <laughs> neighing. That's uh, a very niche It's quite unique. I know, especially at Cats Protection, where you'd probably <laughs> expect cats meowing rather than anything else. So on today's podcast, we thought we'd have a little chat about behavior and pain, but in a potentially much wider sense. Is that right? Yeah, anything that sort of crosses over our two, I was going to say fields of expertise, but that sounds quite arrogant, but the two <laughs> areas that, that we work in, obviously you yourself, Yvette, and myself, the behaviour side of things and, and where that overlaps and how there, there's always a, a combination of factors at play. Yeah, and also the teamwork that's potentially needed between different people looking after, caring for cats, isn't it? Absolutely, and that communication and, and that clear line between the, the caregiver, the uh, vet and the behaviourist, if we're, if we're looking at a behaviour problem, absolutely. Perfect. And I think also we're going to, obviously, we work in a shelter situation, so we're always going to, um, you know, re- refer to that. But also I think a lot of what we're hopefully going to talk about is going to be usable in a, in a clinic setting as well, sort of in like an owner-vet situation, if you're talking about that, isn't it? So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've done some uh, private behaviour work outside of the, the rescue environment, and it's, and it's pretty much the, the same thing. It's only dependent on how much um, sort of money someone is, is putting into it. it makes the, the huge difference, but ultimately that very rarely makes the, the change of decision in, in, in the path that we take to, to work on a problem. Cool. Okay, so I don't know, do you want to kick off, Daniel, and just start somewhere you know your experience with pain behavior that sort of thing if you want to go into that and kick off with it really absolutely (laughs) um well from our perspective uh when we do behavior work so whenever anyone brings a cat to us with a behavior problem uh one of the first generally the first thing we do is ask if it has been vet checks because it is so important that there's no underlying medical cause or issue that uh, is going to affect our, our, our plan that we put in place. So there's no point in me writing a six page behaviour plan if all the cat needs uh, is some pain relief and that's the way the, that's why the cat is behaving the way it is. Sure. So one of the big ones is if we get cats coming to us and the owners describe them as showing aggression or aggression aggressive type behaviours, so swiping, biting, hissing or just becoming less tolerant of handling. I'm sure when you're in practice you had lots of of cats being brought to you in a, a, in a similar state. That's right, yeah. And and what we first want to rely on is that there's no pain causing the uh, aggression, so very much in the same way that if we are sore or in pain as humans, we become more irritable, we can become less tolerant. If you think of the last time you had a, a toothache or a, just a really bad headache, you're going to be a lot less tolerant of people coming into your space, of touching you. And it's a bit anthropomorphic, but it's no different than, than what our cats uh, are like. So particularly, if this has been a cat that has been with an owner for uh, quite a while now and there's a sudden change in behaviour, there's a good chance there's a medical component there and around the handling and touching, that's generally pain. Yeah, I agree with that. And I have definitely seen quite a lot of those in practice. And I think also, oftentimes it's a certain age range that you start expecting to see more behavioural changes. So any cats, for example, after 10 is when they're more likely to get arthritic changes, for example. And oftentimes that's when owners start noticing 
behavioral changes as well, isn't it? And it's not just around the handling, but obviously there's other, other signs you can see, especially on the behavior front as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think where people struggle is that the behavioral, um, the body language cues for stress and the body language cues for pain are often quite similar. So it's hard to tell sometimes whether the cat's just a little bit stressed because maybe it's moved into a home or a new home or there's a stressful event has occurred or whether the cat is in pain so in the first instance getting owners or the caregivers of the animal to identify and there's often that sort of back and forth between uh vets and, and behavior so i think it might be more behavioral i think it might be might be more medical but certainly when cats get older and um, particularly issues around the thyroid often that flags up as a behavioral problem first off so the owner has maybe noticed a change in appetite but they've maybe not noticed anything else going on but all of a sudden the cat has started vocalizing a lot more mm -hmm. they instantly go down the road this must be a behavioral problem speak to behaviors and fix this but obviously if there is issues uh, with the thyroid then that is something that needs to be looked at medically and you're right after it gets to that certain age so as well as general vet checks whenever we are looking at the behavior side of things it's also just sort of encouraging owners or caregivers that actually just taking your cat for a, an mot uh, at least once a year when they're uh, older just to make sure you're not going to have underlying problems there yeah and i think it's also the other important thing around those consults is first of all to highlight that the owner tells the right story so to speak and you know make sure that any changes they might have noticed as subtle as, subtle as they might be that they mention those but also I think from a veterinary perspective to make sure we ask the right questions so for example you know is there any normal behavior that you're not seeing anymore is there any change in is there any new behaviors you've noticed as an owner um, is the cat changing its routine sort of thing um, I think that's also quite important from a veterinary perspective to make sure we don't just focus on the health aspect but also think behavior is part of that bigger picture and that's kind of what the owner can see isn't it the behavior as an indicator of potentially yeah, underlying disease yeah and I think that is very much um, sort of similar parts of, of our job and I know certainly when we refer people to to speak to vets first off it's doing a lot of note-taking if possible so keeping diaries and also getting video if they can yes. on their phone and that's what we want to see because when we can sort of see what the owner is talking about i think the big problem a lot of the time again speaking to vets we get this is maybe the use of labels on what is sort of happening rather than the actual behavior so behavior is something that should be measurable it's something that we can see whereas when a uh, i'm sure when a cat gets brought into a vet clinic people say it was a bit flat or they'll sort of use a lot of descriptive words but not sort of notice that reference that specific change in active behavior so the cat is not playing as much or he's only going out for a short amount of time and it's the same when we're looking at the, the behavior side of things being really descriptive about the behaviors rather than labels makes that huge difference so when we look at sort of the stakeholders involved the owner or the caregiver and their responsibility and being able to identify what that mm. problem means is is quite important but like you say it's sometimes up to us to ask the right questions and not just about what have you seen that makes you think this but what have you not seen what are the changes in the behavior and obviously speaking from a, a shelter environment one of the big problems is that we don't always have a, a baseline to go off so yeah. if a, a cat comes into care or a cat has been in care and goes into a home and it starts showing a particular behavior we don't always have a baseline of we know that this cat in this home for three years previous did not show this behavior so this must be a new problem in the environmental situation whereas if we did have that information to compare against it would make a huge difference and i imagine that's probably quite similar for the the medical side of things to know if there's a history of 
of what's going on. No, absolutely. And I think, again, that's... But that's also sometimes, I think, potentially our job as a vet as well, is to make people more aware of what we're actually looking for you know when we're asking it of a history for example to say okay this is we don't just need to know is he eating three times a day is he toileting normally it's like where is he toileting how is he toileting is there vocalization around the toileting is he changing and the pattern etc it's all those subtle details that we want to know and we kind of take for granted i suppose but again as an as a caregiver you might not actually be aware that these are quite important little signs really isn't it absolutely and even asking the question has the cat changed how it goes into the litter tray is there mobility issues there because if there's mobility issues then the cat may be reluctant to use the 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 litter tray so when the question is asked does your cat still use the litter tray well it may still be going into the litter tray and householding on occasion and that may be due to the fact it's just a lot more effort to go into the litter tray so the owner will say yes it could be sometimes but is there a change in in, in how that in how that happens and how that occurs uh, i think certainly um it, it finding the, the the right questions to, to ask the owners is is hugely important um but also just getting the owners to to really be aware of what cat, cat body language and vets and behaviors and, and everyone is, is is so hugely uh, so hugely important uh, I think there's always the, the presumption that um, behaviours sometimes happen ar arbitrarily or ad hoc and we always say there is a reason for it, there will either be an environmental trigger, a behavioural trigger or as we discussed today there will often be a, a medical trigger for it so it's getting to people to sort of almost zoom out a little bit and then take a, a look at the situation mm. um, as a whole. So obviously like I said, pain and how it affects uh, aggression is, is a really big one. You've got pain around mobility and, and moving. Uh, we had a, a case where a particularly old cat um, was referred to us for, for, for separate issues, but it was um, indicated that they didn't think there was anything medically wrong for the cat. It was over 20 years old. Um, because it was still jumping up and down off windowsills fine right. and we sort of tried to communicate that at 20 years old even if the cat is not necessarily displaying signs that it is uncomfortable there's a good chance there's going to be something going on there so just help the cat out by providing perches and ledges and, and making it easier for the cat to either prevent problems or if it, there is something underlying uh, just to help that situation along yeah. the way. No, I do agree. It's like, I mean, the amount of times I've been told in practice, it's like, oh, but he doesn't cry. You know, so just because a cat or dog doesn't vocalise, people mm. think they're not in pain. You think, oh, it's not quite the same, <laughs> especially Absolutely. not from a cat's perspective, considering, you know, they're, they're prey species as well. So obviously the last thing wanna, they want to do is, announced to the world that they're in a weakened state really Absolutely. isn't it so yeah, yeah. They, they often want to just hide away and, and be left to and, and you'll see that and and part of that as well is whenever owners or caregivers are taking the cats to the vets it's trying to be as specific as possible about what we want the vet to investigate um, so for cases where we have, say, aggression and we advise the owner to, to take the cat to the vet, uh, sometimes we'll get feedback and they'll say, oh, the vet said everything was fine, mm -hmm. but they've just taken the cat to the vet. The vet's on a general health, health check, yeah. but hasn't specifically looked for signs of pains. And obviously, cats that are stressful uh, or, or feeling stressed will not always show on a, a clinical exam uh, signs of pain, but obviously there may be more indication if we can specifically go looking for something rather than just sort of, Oh, uh, he looks healthy and bright in himself. Is there something else going, going yeah. on there? No, and I think also, again, from a vet new perspective, I think a lot of clinicians now actually consider pain as a fourth um, you know, thing to look for. So we don't mm -hmm. just look at temperature, pulse, and respiration, right. which you look for in your normal clinical exam, but also obviously making sure that you assess very clearly for pain in different joints, especially, as I said, you know, in certain age groups where you focus on it a lot more, just because most cats seem to be affected.
um, to various degrees, yeah. isn't it? So it's worth looking for it and making the point of it really again. Absolutely, because even if it is at a very low level of pain, that is going to increase stress a little bit. So the pain may not directly affect a specific behaviour, but if you're in a situation where you've got a multi-cat household, there's a little bit of pain there that can add to the stress. Stress can stack up, it's quite cumulative, and then all of a sudden you might start having uh, issues with the other cat in the home that is not caused by the pain, but is certainly informed and affected um, by that pain. Uh, another interesting one, and I, I, uh, from a veterinary perspective, I'm not sure which category it falls into, but is uh, skin irritation and skin problems. Mm -hmm. So um, we certainly do sort of see behaviours where cats have skin conditions and obviously they are more irritable, particularly around handling, but it could also be uh, in general and something as well when I worked with dogs was always flagging up as a cause of, uh, of problem because that kind of would sit with pain, but I guess not. Could do, yeah. I mean, we definitely skin problems, obviously, also with regards to unkempt coats and matted coats, I yes. think is always a good start as well, which is always some I tended to see quite a lot. But I think there's definitely certain hyperesthesia type conditions. Some of them, I think it's still questioned whether they're actually more neurological because some of them seem to respond to anti-epileptics, for example. Um, so there's a potential there, but I definitely think, you know, skin issues, especially the over-grooming side of things, we see that, for example, in cystitis, which obviously has got a pain component to it as well. Um, so we do see that in that as well, over-grooming in certain areas, for example, or sore joints where cats okay, over-groom yeah. over joints and, and things like that. So, yeah. Absolutely. I think hyperesthesia is a really good uh, one to hit on because it is very much straight down the middle of the, the mental component and the, the behavioural component because there's not a lot that we can necessarily do for it but we can in a lot of instances um, try and provide other outlets to, to change the behaviour and these are ones that cases often um, flag up with us and it maybe starts with the cat doing a bit of uh, tail chasing or other behaviours or maybe showing um, behaviours such as showing more sort of predatory behaviours towards people and their feet as they um, pass and then we get the discussion going with the vet and then it sort of often goes uh, back and forth between the uh, the two until sort of hyperesthesia is put forward as a um, as as a name for for what's going on and that can not always have a, a direct solution to it so sort of trying to work with the vet to provide an option for this cat that will hopefully make the cat feel better and the owner feel more comfortable as well mm -hmm. though typically and um, I'm sure you, you'll see this quite commonly is that as soon as owners seem to have a name for it they seem to be a lot more comfortable with it it's and no accepting longer, yeah, it, yeah it's no longer as much of, it's just I know what it is now <laughs> it still happens but it's just the fact that I, I know what it is and, and that sort of changes their perspective on it yeah so obviously with, with conditions like that we're doing a lot around stimulation so it's the um, enrichment and the appropriate toy play and sort of providing other suitable outlets for it. The other thing as well is that we sort of need to consider that we're not punishing the cat for, for those behaviours such yeah. as um, chasing the tail and that's something for any uh, stereotypic or abnormal repetitive behaviour that we wouldn't want to um, punish or heavily discourage the um, animal from doing it which which is often quite a tricky one to, to word to, to caregivers and owners in the right way ideally we don't want them doing it so we will try and direct their attention on something else but at the same time we don't want to sort of be constantly going up and picking them up and interrupting them things that could cause them more stress and sure. um, if not uh, and an interesting topic as well that always comes up is if there's uh, an injury and sort of uh, do you put on uh, a cone or a string or a jacket to prevent the animal from 
uh, over grooming or do you sort of try and manage it in, yeah. in other ways because yeah. that in itself could cause frustration and stress that the cat, cat can't practice that behavior simply covering it is not stopping the cat from that desire of wanting to practice it so it's always a case-by-case basis when sure. that comes up that's interesting yeah but there's definitely i mean there's especially i think for me those ones with the cones and things you kind of think uh, the, you can see the frustration on the cat's face isn't it so i'm always like if i don't have to go down that route i try not to Absolutely. just from the cat's perspective and in a way you also think i know you want for example give the wound a time to heal that sort of thing but at the same time like you've said it's just because the animal's not displaying the behavior doesn't mean that symptom so to speak is gone which means you you know you can't actually gauge are you getting resolving the underlying Absolutely. issue or not isn't it so then but cone comes off and the, the animal instantly goes goes back to it so yeah. we would often um on, on sort of discussion with the vets if it was uh, a wound that looked like it might get infected or be pr- particularly problematic then we would look at that whilst providing other options but if there's opportunities particularly in care with it could be supervised um quite a lot we would sort of try and do it and maybe only put on uh, something that would restrain the cat from doing the behaviour uh, if we were in an environment where we couldn't sort of monitor the, the, the cat for a longer period of time. Yeah, that's a tricky, tricky one. So what other problems do you tend to see that could or couldn't be associated with pain? <laughs> uh, the other sort of big one, um, and I'll sort of loosely try and skid in and tie in with pain, is uh, problems around the litter tray, so, so house soiling. Yeah. Now, we've already mentioned that mobility issues can be a, a, a big problem for cats, but also um, urinary tract infections is a, a massive problem problem uh, sort of looking at our cases that we get through at least sort of one in five one in six of those have a medical uh, component right. or are directly because of um, a, a medical issue and and you'll get it where there will be some cases of it ha- being happening on and off high soiling so uh, urinating outside of the litter tray on and off for could be months and years and then they contact us and then we advise them to get uh, a veterinary check and it turns out that there is uh, a urinary tract infection you sort of wonder how long that the cat has actually been sort of suffering with this and that is very much one where we sort of say at the start we will get a medical check first off because there is no point in us starting a behavior problem, uh, problem unless we've absolutely ruled out and that's also again to link back in with that communication with um the owner and the vet we will often get examples where we will advise owners to take the cat to the vet because it's soiling outside of the the litter tray uh, or urinating outside of the litter tray and they will come back to us and say the vet's given a clean bill of health but what won't have happened is that there won't have been a urine sample checked so then it's the owner from their perspective i've paid my money i've gone to the vet i want you to give behavior advice now but from our perspective it's a case of we're not satisfied that there's definitely not a um, a medical problem going on there so then that leads to a bit more of a struggle whereas if the urine sample was checked pretty much straight away but again that needs to be a communication of course um, yeah yeah uh, both with with the owner and the caregiver and the vet yeah but i think it also highlights the issue it is the chicken and the egg a little bit isn't it is it is a behavioral issue so the underlying potential stress leading for example to the typical feline interstitial cystitis so the stress cystitis here or is it an underlying medical condition that then results in behavioural issues? So it's, it is literally chicken and the egg, isn't it? Yeah, so very much so. And, and so, for example, problem behaviours like over-grooming, I was having a discussion with my uh, colleague earlier, um, one of the signs for a cat having cystitis is that the cat over-grooms or is the cat over-grooming because it was stressed and also has cystitis because it was stressed. So it, and it does, and, and it's, it's all of that coming together and sort of working very much uh, across disciplines, disorder, we may not understand chicken egg which it was, but if we're both tackling it, then hopefully that will try and, and resolve the issue. And mm. I think I think it's so important as well that 
and we look at welfare of, the, of an animal both with the veterinary and the behavioural mindset and often you'll see it, it is split if you go to conferences or you go to oh, events it is, yeah, it yeah, is yeah. split but there's so much of, a, of an overlap between things and ultimately good welfare sits in the middle of both the medical and behavioural side of things that uh, it really sort of comes together but that is one of the biggest medical issues that we get from that is just high soiling and it not being checked uh, as well as that when we look at behavioural problems, behavioural problems are only problems when they affect um, owners. I think that's a, a fact how they're, yeah. how, they're, <laughs> how they're identified. And often the only symptom of the problem is of the cat having a medical issue is this behavioural problem. Um, so I think that's something that we always sort of need to, to bear in mind that this symptom, this behavioural problem, there might have been other signs or things going on before that that just weren't being picked up on. Mm -hmm. So again, we'd like to prevent it from getting to the ultimate stage where the cat is stressed, it's over grooming, it has cystitis, whether that was first or it's um, become as a, as a result of stress. So it's all about trying to be more preventive with, with this, which is which is always hard to do. Yeah, but I think also that kind of highlights, again, our both our roles, I suppose, both within the veterinary but also behavioural sectors to try and educate people on what is normal um, so first of all, they can spot abnormal and hopefully spot it much earlier, which then means it's not leading down to the road where they actually perceiving a problem, if you know what I mean. You know, Absolutely. so where they see, yeah. oh no, my cat's not behaving as a cat normally should, which means they're going to pick up on the problem earlier, which means hopefully the cat's not going to end up soiling inappropriately because the owner picked it up much earlier. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and that's like I say, it's coming down to understanding the behavior. If you understand the behavior, then you know what is different and what is abnormal. And as both that understanding... Uh, our domestic cats understanding their ethology but also understanding what is natural and normal for that cat so bringing it back to a shelter setting we have a lot less of an ability to understand what is normal for that cat but there are things we can do so for example cats protection uh, we use intake questionnaires to get as much information on the cat in its previous home mm. uh, beforehand uh, we can sort of try and keep notes or observations and different charities use different sort of welfare assessments or welfare checks or notes and it's all about trying to to work out what's normal for that cat and normal for cats in general hopefully for most cases they should match up what is normal uh, for the ethology of the cats and what's normal for the cat but sometimes you get variation and that's okay if that's not normal for that individual cat but as soon as that starts to to waver off any of those two lines then we need to sort of work on it mm. um yeah in quite a collaborative way yeah and then the old Vet check, vet check behaviorist, <laughs> isn't it? That That's seems it. to be the tagline within CPS. As soon as there's a problem, which could be either behavioral or medical, it's like vet check behavior. <laughs> and it's, it's one of those things that we do. Uh, so obviously people uh, work in many departments in cats protection. So you've got fundraisers, you've got IT people, people that work in shops. So not everybody that is a volunteer or a staff member at cats protection is a cat expert, quite the opposite. Uh, on a lot of occasions so what we encourage them to do is if anybody does approach them as, as they naturally do you work for cats protection you must know everything about cats it's just that <laughs> vet check behaviorist get, get, get those two boys <laughs> out there and, and just get the it phrase. it feels like you're contributing to something and it's something that i will because i'll try and engage with people like outside of work um uh, if you go to an event and people are talking they find out oh you're a, a cat behaviorist oh do you teach cats to sit all the time no that's uh, that's not what i do and they will ultimately ask but dependent on how I'm feeling uh, if I will go into it I'll get all the history and information about it then and there but if not I will often just sort of put the vet check behavior line out there so people feel like you've engaged yeah, with them yeah and fine. giving them useful yeah, advice as absolutely. well really isn't it and let's face it you know the, the cat's hopefully going to be helped 
in one way, shape, or form. Absolutely, they else, will. So. They will. They will have gone to to professionals, and and obviously we'll try and direct them to to behaviours in the um uh, the the right kind of behaviours. That is a, a little tiny side note, but it's always an interesting one. There's still obviously vet practices out there who maybe use uh, trainers or behaviourists who they've been recommending for decades and decades um who maybe haven't kept up with sort of the current modern thinking around behavior and scientific yeah. uh, methods so for people out there who are engaging with vet practices that recommend behaviorists you should make sure that your behaviorist is um, using current scientific thinking that they are uh, using more of the positive reinforcement based training and they really have a good understanding of the animal obviously as uh, was alluded to in, in previous podcasts and um, that there is no a one set way for somebody to call themselves a behaviorist so it, it can be quite tricky so we say make sure that they're using positive reinforcement make sure they're using current methods there are organizations such as the abtc or apbc that can direct you to uh, behaviorists and trainers who sort of follow what we would say is the, the right way to do things but be really careful about the behaviors that you're recommended just because they seem nice and friendly when they're talking to you doesn't mean they're they're always going to be right for the for the animals yeah and i think also like you said you know this down to teamwork as well though isn't it making sure that you still you know even though you're referring something to behaviorists that case still kind of stays with you and it is a two-pronged approach well three-pronged because you're including the caregiver Absolutely. as well isn't it and it is that teamwork that needs to continue forward as well looking after that cat yeah and there should always be very open discussion there's nothing um particularly special or magical about uh, behavior work it is uh, quite <laughs> boring a lot of the time so there shouldn't be a reluctance from uh, somebody on the behavior side of things not to want to to give away their secrets or not want to delve into that information and and i always sort of find it that the maybe the behaviors of trainers who are quite uncomfortable with being questioned or get quite edgy about being asked what kind of methods they're using there's generally a reason why right. they are responding yeah. like that whereas if it's hopefully somebody that is engaged in the right kind of behavior they will be happy to talk that uh, talk about that and to share that information with both the vets and and the owners because it's one of those things that vets will, in, will inevitably give out behavioral advice whether it's intentional um or not through personal experience it's natural to talk about your own cat so it's better if they have the right information so yeah. that they are going to give it out that they're at least giving out the, the right information so mm. yeah it's that idea of communication between all three parties or, or whoever's yeah. involved in, it, in the process and i think that's also another one another good point you made earlier is especially nowadays with videos being easily accessible um, I think that's such a good way forward, isn't it? If cats are sh displaying anything that the owner's not unsure of, you can always just get them to take a video so you, you can see yourself what the cat's actually trying to tell you. Because um, I think body language, mm, we all know it's not always the easiest to <laughs> decipher. Luckily, yeah. you're a behaviorist, so we can just send things to you and say, what's this cat saying, Daniel? Yeah. <laughs> I think I am a massive, massive advocate of using uh, video with our animals. I don't think it's done enough. Um, but as well as filming what we perceive to be the the problem behaviors, whether it is aggression or whether it is uh, house owning or, or fearful behaviors, we also should be recording the animal at times we think that they, they're not showing the behavior problem because that's really interesting. Uh, and if, say, if they cast a cat that's shown aggression, we always say, do not deliberately provoke your cat to show aggression to get the video. Because yeah. um, actually seeing how the cat interacts with you when it's not shown aggression can actually tell us as much. So what the owner is classing as a sometimes friendly, happy cat that shows aggression, if you see a video of the cat being around a person when it's not showing aggression, the cat may still be showing low level body language that's uncomfortable so what you have is a cat that is generally quite stressed or fearful and sometimes that tips over threshold right, yeah. so having a sort of 
as I said, like a baseline to compare it to can be really useful. The other thing within a shelter, and I'm a massive advocate of this, so anybody that works with any range of shelters, whether it's the um, small independent shelters or big shelters, is to video the animal when they are not around people. Okay. And that's something I find massively useful. I initially started when I was working with a, a, a dog charity, and there's one case that always sticks in my mind of a, a German Shepherd really really reactive and reactivity can be a result of uh, pain can be influenced by pain but nothing was showing up there's nothing when you looked at looked at and there's not an issue we put in a camera to record overnight and anytime you seen that dog move overnight it was such a laborious task so what effectively was happening was that during the day when people were there people were so highly valued to that um, dog. As soon as people came, that adrenaline mm. shot up and they're like, oh my oh, goodness, people here, really. Could, so could it overcome masked, those absolutely. issues. Wow. And okay. then as soon as we watched back video of it overnight, trying to get up and it wouldn't settle for more than 15, 20 minutes oh, at a time. Definitely. So it's something that we've, uh, I've brought with us encouraged sort of some of our, our centers to use with, with cats. So both from a medical point of view, but from a behavior point of view, uh, what's your cat doing when you're not around? Is it engaging? So you may have a fearful cat that hides away a lot of the time, but actually when people aren't around, it's quite happy. It's engaging with toys or, or other things. If you've got multi-cat situations mm -hmm. as well, oh. sometimes people are always adamant that it's this cat. Yeah. But it could well be the the advocate, uh, the other cat. So I'm a, a massive advocate for using technology and, and filming our interactions. And also from a, a training point of view, <laughs> if anybody trains their, their cat or, or their other animals, get somebody to train your video your training session and watch it back. You will learn so much more that <laughs> about fashion. yourself, isn't Absolutely. it? Yeah, it's, I can imagine, especially with regards to timings and in sort of subtle body languages yeah. and things like that. The body it? languages, they're really interesting one. And you go, why didn't the dog do that or yeah. the cat do that in, in the moment? And all of a sudden, you're getting that when you're watching a bag and there's, there's a reason a reason for it and um, so particularly when training with cats and, and when i talk about training with cats we're not talking about getting them on america's got talent but useful training like getting them to be comfortable with the cat carrier particularly this is quite a new early field uh, <laughs> as it were people don't do it very much and um, so getting as much video as you can to make sure you're really reading and responding to the body language mm. is, is, is hugely important and then roughly tying that back into to pain and behavior nicely done um that's uh, when we sort of talk about going to the vets and vet visits uh and things like that people always say it's a stressful experience for the mm -hmm. cat uh cat here's going to the vet it's stressful uh, and uh, we always say is it one stressful experience or is it lots of stressful experience so picking the cat up putting the cat in the cat car cat being uh, traveled in a car and then cat at the vet so you've got lots of individual stressors and if we can bring some of those down that will then reduce stress for the cat in uh, the clinical exam and then hopefully you will get more behavior that might indicate that they are how the animal's truly feeling rather than a cat that just either goes completely limp or just is really rigid and, and putting up a yeah. fight so doing something like training to be comfortable with the cat carrier or the car can then make that process uh, a whole lot a lot easier on everybody involved yeah everybody <laughs> and less stressful for everybody as yeah. well not just the cat is not just the cat something we, we see as well is if there's a history of behavior problems uh say issues with handling or, or people are, are going in the cat carrier then you have situations where the owner the caregiver is less likely to take the animal to True. the because stressful for the animal stressful yeah. for, for the owner and then you can have medical issues that are sort of 
underlying or ongoing there or new medical issues that crop up and then the behaviors intensify and again you get that situation where it's hard to know what if this has been caused by medical and what is behavior because there's been such a delay or a total cancellation of trying to get that cat seen yeah. medically but people sort of want a real behavioral solution to it but you're going to need that medical uh, solution to it if there is an underlying medical issue first off do you, do you think sometimes people expect a behavioral solution to be a quick fix Absolutely. That is <laughs> Sorry, the, it's just one that just popped into my head. It's, sort of... it's, it's, it's a really funny uh, thing. So if you speak to any behaviourist, they'll talk about how um, owners constantly sort of expect a, a magic one solution or mm. a fix. But in defence of owners and caregivers, anytime I go to a doctor, I expect my GP will be able to solve my problems. <laughs> Pill for nil. So massively, I, I, I complain about this uh, all the time in my professional life. I am a hypocrite and do the exact same thing uh, with that. So yeah, I think, I think people expect a quick fix primarily because they don't understand the underlying cause of behaviour. And similar when we were discussing how when people have a, a name for a medical term, that's them... 50% happy if people understand why a behavior is occurring. So a cat is showing maybe fear-based aggression, so using uh, hissing, swiping, biting to deter scary things away from it. When we really break that down and people start to perceive why the cat is showing that the behavior, they will be more accepting of it. That doesn't mean they'll still want the cat or will be willing to work on the behavior problem, but it makes a huge difference. From the owner's perspective, what they can sometimes be seeing is, oh, this cat's just shown aggression, or this cat's the classic one is Jekyll and Hyde, so sometimes yeah. it's fine, sometimes it's not. So again, if we can uh, get owners to understand that actually the cat isn't Jekyll and Hyde, the cat is struggling a lot of the time, but it just copes with it in different ways yeah. until, it, until it goes up to that point. So that sort of understanding is, is half the battle, and then putting the work in, I think... To, to sort of speak quite quite generally, um, people who, who own animals, they're more willing to pay money for something than they are to put the time and effort in. And that's often problematic because um, people often go buy a, a pheromone diffuser, yeah. but that's not a cure-all uh, yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. It certainly shouldn't be sold as a, a, a cure-all. But people would rather do that than sort of just do five minutes of playtime with your cat each day, which is True. which is the problem. But saying that, you get some people who are really engaged and they go, oh my goodness, I... I didn't understand this and oh if I knew that with my last cat that would be fantastic so for as much as there are people that maybe want a quick fix or ignore advice <laughs> um you will get the people who are really really engaged and it's all about the the type of the way you present the information so again when we look at that idea of our our method is to say a vet check behaviorist so if we have something that we are fairly certain is say misdirected predatory aggression so the cat's just punching people's hands or feet practicing this behavior there's a good chance it's either due to what they were taught as a kitten or um, frustration and lack of stimulation so uh, simultaneously we will in a, in a single plan say uh, go get a vet check but we will also provide information for them to start uh, at okay. the same time whereas if it is something like um, like we said earlier house rolling urinating outside the litter tray we won't offer advice until we get that urine sample first and again that is because people if the people think oh my cat's just been a little bit rough when it plays and you say go get the cat checked first without offering any information then they will sort of just disengage with it and you might not get a response so mm -hmm. it's giving them a little bit of what they need in the information because it is probably likely that but making sure they get the vet check as well and you'll get much better engagement so a lot of what we are doing is sort of tailoring our advice 
based on the people and the individuals and, and what we reckon we can we can get from them yeah and um, also i suppose depending on the, the problem as well isn't it what's most likely absolutely medical most, versus because sometimes you'll be uh surprised but but very often uh you, you will not be uh surprised i think there's that um as it's saying in uh, the the medical industry is if you hear fifth beats think horses not zebras and, and that is exa- <laughs> unless you grew up in Africa <laughs> oh, anything's yeah. possible. Okay, that's probably not the, uh, <laughs> not the best one. But yeah, that idea of um, it's always the uh, the basic one. We got a, a really great email from one of our centres a couple of weeks ago on a uh, behaviour case, and it was quite a peculiar behaviour case in the outset. And the idea is that the cat was biting people. Uh, predominantly around whenever people were washing up and there's a few other issues so on on the the outside of that when you look at it you think oh actually it's going to be exciting it's going to be different (laughs) but we did uh when we were initially contacting the the center back we said there could be a potential that there's specific issues around this maybe it was sprayed with water when it was uh younger in the previous home but it is likely just to be either fear-based aggression misdirected for aggression or frustration delve a little deeper it looks like it's frustration related aggression um the cat was being uh left alone a lot it was quite aroused around food and it was being picked up and, and left up so we sort of determined that actually a lot of it is just the cat was showing frustration related aggression it's not some special aversion to people washing up or, <laughs> or people wearing marigold gloves or whatever it is it is quite often the really basic stuff yeah. for, for most of the time interesting yeah but it's quite it's quite complex isn't it but i think it again highlights also especially bringing this back to pain is like obviously the different components within a painful experience as well isn't it how much is how big the behavioral component usually is isn't it that it's not just experienced as a physical discomfort but also it affects the emotional side of things as well absolutely and it has quite a it can have quite a long-term effect on the the animal as well so uh particularly around um uh, pain if uh, we'll use uh, Eric for uh, a lack of a better example. Uh, the cat's got a problem with its ear. Somebody goes to stroke it on its ear. It hurts, and the cat could maybe either show a fearful behaviour and run away, or could show aggressive type behaviour and swipe. This could happen once, and there could be a single learning event, or it could happen a few times, and and the cat goes actually okay. Every time somebody goes to stroke me around my head, um, it hurts, and they swipe. No, obviously cats don't think like that in their heads. Um, <laughs> they, but, might <laughs> they might do. <laughs> they might do. Uh, and then this uh, medical problem gets resolved, um, but the cat still shows the same behaviour. Anybody, sure. somebody tries to, to stroke it. And that is because the cat does not necessarily understand that the only reason it hurt whenever people touched me on the head was because there was something going on which is now resolved. The cat just makes a simple association that any time people come towards me with their hand and touch me on the head, that hurts so mm. I now want to either avoid that or I want to discourage people from from sure. doing that so it can be quite a long-lasting thing if there's problems um, uh, with say getting into a litter tray or on the pads of the feet that standing on the litter is uncomfortable so they start toileting outside of the, outside of the litter tray in a different location even when the problem is resolved if this is working for them toileting on your sofa why would they need to change back what to doing. what they what they do so it can have that sort of legacy effect as well and of course if we don't know the information of the cat we're now getting this and we're being told the uh, cat's not uh, toileting the litter tray we get it vet checked and nothing is flagging up from a medical point of view and uh, no mobility issues no utis no um problems with the pads but there could have been historical problems that we just sure. don't know but so you're always sort of particularly in rescue and in shelter dealing with that kind of grey area of not really knowing what's happened previously a lot mm. of the time. So how would you go about solving these cases then? 
you know, for example, if you had a cat like that, like you've just described, that sort of toil toilets on the on the inappropriate places and things like that, how would you go about sorting that out? Okay, well, firstly, <laughs> I think there's because we said we're going to do it, we're going to help people understand the really big thing, and this is a, a little bit that you can always discuss with people. Um, toilet cats that toilet outside of the litter tray quite often, a large percentage of the time, will either um, urinate on the sofa or on the bed. Now, obviously, as human beings, these are the most expensive items <laughs> in our house a lot of the time, and people think the, the cat is doing this to be spiteful or horrible or because it doesn't like us. There's there's a couple of theories as to, to why this happens. The first one is obviously the reason cats toilet in litter trays and litter areas is because the urine is absorbed and that's what they want it to go away. So if you think of your sofa cushions or your bed, actually they are super absorbent. Yeah. So they give the cat exactly um, what they want. And the other thing, if you've got a stressed cat, both of these are generally off the ground. So we know cats like to be off the ground um, uh, when they're feeling stressed. Now in most instances, there's not opportunities to toilet off the ground, but this could be that. The other theory is that it's about mixing scent, which I'd be more inclined to go with the first rather than, than this one. But the idea is where you sit on the sofa and your bed, regardless of cleaning your sheets, that is where the biggest scent buildup of the people are. So the idea of mixing scent with owners in the house, so if the cat's feeling stressed, mixing the scent might make them feel more comfortable. Okay. So again, trying to not normalize the behavior, but for somebody comes in and goes, oh my goodness, the cat's peeing on the sofa you can actually say this happens a lot of the times a lot of instances uh, and this and this is sort of why we think we're doing it so for something like that you want to make sure you've provided them with the right options of where to toilet so if the medical issue has been completely resolved you want to provide them hopefully with something that they will use but slightly different so say you've had um, a wood pellet or you've had gravel and that's when the cat started having aversion to the litter tray, try something finer. So, uh, play sand, so you get um, sand like glitter, or you can literally just bag, buy a bag of play sand. <laughs> um, something that will absorb in, uh, and uh, the cat can dig in and hide its deposits and put it in a litter tray. Again, depends on how the aversion. Some cats will return back to the same litter tray. You may, may need to find a different lit uh, litter tray. And obviously cats do not perceive a lot of their world through colour, so just getting a different coloured litter tray isn't necessarily going to help. <laughs> Try finding with a different substrate and a different kind of tray uh, in general. So now that you've got a suitable alternative for them to use, what you want to do is make them not use what you don't want them to use. Okay. And this is the bit that's often uh, missed out a lot of the time. So we're not going to do that through punishment, we're just going to use it through simple um uh, if the if we'll say it's your your sofa, if it is your sofa, restrict access to the sofa. So for some people, they're happy just to put like um like a puppy playpen or something around the sofa. Yep. The cat can't get up, or if you're uh, really lazy, just throw something on top of the sofa that's not toilet friendly. They can do, <laughs> or if you want to go a little bit more um in depth, just get plastic sheet and your plastic tarpaulin and put it over the um cushion seats bearing in mind that if the cat does urinate on it that it is going to drip so make sure it's, <laughs> it's going in the right location but the idea with that is if the cat then goes and toilets on the um, sofa with the plastic it won't absorb so it's no longer a place that the cat finds satisfying, find satisfying. so either okay. that or just block it so the cat has to go and seek out a different uh, resource to toilet in now thankfully um cats naturally gravitate towards litter trays if you think obviously providing kittens with litter in the socialization period but for the most time we don't actually teach cats how to toilet in litter trays it's something they will naturally pick up so the idea is if there is a good suitable alternative they will be seeking it out for themselves so it's that idea of reducing their need or access to the 
unpleasant one and providing them with something better and changing that association. So any anytime there could be associations built up. So through all behaviour change, we need to sort of think of any particularly stimuli or cues that a cat can be picking up on and we need to change that so they're not having the same cues and we can work it more to, to our advantage uh, as well. Uh, a similar thing is almost uh, identical with when you have um, cats scratching say um, scratching on the door frame, scratching on the sofa and people follow the advice and they go out and get the absolutely most wonderful scratching post that we would recommend which is absolutely fantastic and they put it out and the cat doesn't use it and they, they, don't, they don't understand why it doesn't work but the idea is if your cat has found that scratching on the sofa works why are they going to necessarily need to look sure. for something else? So you need to restrict their ability and access to scratch on the sofa and then have the scratching post next to the sofa so hopefully they'll direct that behaviour onto that instead because if it is a working for a cat they're not going to need to change it. Yeah. Um, if you're driving to work and you have no issues with the route you're going on you will continue using that and then all of a sudden someday a diversion's put up you have to take a different route you actually find out that this works just the same or better okay I'll start using this route more yeah. and often so it's that really sort of simple it's not too much of a complex process in terms of how the cat perceives and, and works what you don't want to do is shout at the cat when it's toileting or shout at the cat when it's scratching because then it can associate that doing either of those activities uh, is is what it's being punished for or doing them around you so then you right. get a situation where the cat just does it but away from you yeah. which then makes it a lot harder to to work on and resolve that issue so it's fairly straightforward but slightly complicated. Yeah, and, and, so, and it's always one of those that it's always completely dependent on the on the individual uh, case by case. There, you could put that plan in place, but it may be something that the cat is really associated with the litter tray position or the type of litter tray or the substrate yeah. that's in it. So it's it's almost being a detective and sort of thinking what are all the variables here? What can I change? But I don't want to change it all at once because just having that might be enough to stress the cat or not sure. to want the toilet. So it's sort of little bits like that and when you go back to the idea of is is it a quick fix for behavior problems particularly around householding often it's a slow bit of detective work trying this seeing if that works if it does grant if not you're going back and changing different little bits and tweaks and i think yeah i've definitely seen that in practice as well like especially with cats for example with cystitis or something when they were obviously in pain urinating and then they had like a litter tray version after after that was okay, sorted yeah. which was also quite interesting and you think oh okay how do i go about teaching the cat that actually it is okay to pee yeah absolutely <laughs> so. you need to, to create something that's similar enough to what the old thing was but completely different enough that the cat doesn't perceive that's it, it as that. exactly is that, yeah is so yeah now i know how to do it there you so go. thanks for that <laughs> <laughs> right is there anything else you had that you wanted to bring up um, no, I think that's sort of covered um, most aspects of, of looking around um, uh, pain and behaviour. Um, and, and like we mentioned at the start, it was mostly being around the idea of um, that really good communication. So that vets are confident talking about behaviour, but not necessarily giving the answers to behaviour, but knowing what to direct people towards or asking the right questions mm -hmm. to ensure that they are actually working on is this behavior and similarly just sort of making sure that the behaviors are always actually making sure that they do include vets and get the the, the vet referrals there and, and make sure that works you'll get a lot of people maybe sort of uh, new and eager uh, behaviorists and trainers that they want to sort of jump in straight away and provide behavior advice and in a lot of instances it's probably um, right and it's probably not a medical issue but the problem is if you don't get into the habit of ensuring that you are ruling out medical every single time then you're going to miss some pretty easy ones and you're going to start going down this complex route of 
behavior plans and not being able to figure it out when actually it's sort of what we said a really basic the first step is is looking at that medical uh components so, yeah. so it's first off so it's that level of communication just sort of an understanding of of what each stakeholder is looking for um when a, when a behavior says get a vet check or a, or a vet's passing on to, to a behaviorist uh, as well well it's a good learning opportunity i think as well from a veterinary point of view because i quite and i mean i sometimes must admit i did struggle from time to time getting owners to actually agree to go and see <laughs> okay, behaviorists absolutely. yeah it's not always the easiest because they do because i always made quite clear that there is going to be a time commitment with regards there's no point going unless you're actually going to implement what's being suggested afterwards which some owners were and some weren't but for me it was i loved it when they used to go because then i used to get the report as well for six absolutely. pages or longer which was good bedtime reading and again i learned a lot from it and thinking you know different ways of maybe phrasing something or communicating things and also just again that whole holistic approach to animal Fantastic. welfare i suppose isn't it and it's um, that it was all that interlinked and more cats will benefit because you've got that information as well so you can you can pass it on a little side note and i know we're wrapping up but just a little side note is obviously that cost can be quite prohibitive and that is something that maybe within the industry is something that needs to be looked at how do we actually make affordable sensible behavior care to everyone i think mm. that can often put people off you know people can often be reluctant to sort of put up 20 30 quid in a vet visit so That's right. yeah. paying 160 quid 200 quid for a behavior consult can often be quite problematic now in a lot of instances uh, and maybe people aren't aware of this that a lot of insurers will um cover behavioral issues but how many people do we get coming into care that don't have insurance sure. so then they're not so so that is very much something i think going forward that as an industry we need to look at to make sure that people are getting behavior advice and they're not being put off because of the the cost or yeah. because of the, the, the perceived well it's a perceived cost sometimes isn't it because i always the way i try to explain it is like a lot of times the behaviorists do do home visits for example and spend quite a few you know like yeah. two or three hours so if you work it out on an hourly rate you sort of think and then also if you consider writing the you know report afterwards that takes a while right so the, um, that's the, how i always looked at it and I said you know what that's x amount of hours so actually the hourly rate is no worse than you yeah, know, yeah, absolutely. Compared to another profession, from, but from <laughs> our perspective, uh, never going to complain about uh, the money, and particularly like you say, it's uh, writing a six or seven page report genuinely takes a lot longer than you always think it's going to, or, or at least yeah. for me. But yeah, it's sort of trying to make sure that the owners are aware of that of, of that benefit and what yeah. the benefit is to to the cat as to the cat as well. Cool. Okay. Well, I've got nothing else to add. If there's anything else from you. No, I'm, I think I'm we've covered a nice quite a like it. Yeah, yeah, I think we've gone here, there, and everywhere, but yeah. I think it's going to be quite useful. I definitely have learned a couple of things. Okay, <laughs> I will use this final opportunity to, to plug the hopefully lots of vet nurses and vet nurses, uh, vets and vet nurses are aware now, but the Cats Protection Behaviour Guide, so our little Bible, uh, 87 pages, something like that, it's a really good read, and that is uh, free as a download. You can download that from the Cats Protection website if you Google Cats Protection Behaviour Guide. You can download a copy if you do want more information on uh, cat behaviour. Uh, and I also do a shameless plug to a previous podcast of yours that I did <laughs> around kitten socialisation. We're trying to spread the word about kitten socialisation as well. I was well. just going to bring that up, oh, actually. Yes, oh, okay. I thought, oh, yeah. Because we've got a website section on that as well, isn't Absolutely. it? If you go to the Cats Protection uh, website and have a look at kitten socialisation. And then we can prevent behaviour problems from happening exactly. in the first instance. Yes. And then we all know the mantra now. Vet check behaviorist. <laughs> so That's make sure you, you spread the word. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Super. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for your time. I really appreciate it. I know, it's, and it's a very hot room. Can I just say that as well? Today? That's very hot. But no, <laughs> no donkeys. Like we were no donkeys. I know. Donkeys, a couple so of kids screaming outside, which <laughs> hopefully you're having fun on the trail or something like that. That's so yeah, good. thanks again for oh, coming for in. I'm me. sure I'll have you back at some stage, kicking okay, and screaming. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, thanks for that. No I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.